0: Welcome to another episode of the One Year No Beer podcast. I'm particularly excited about this one, Um, this is somebody I've been reaching out to for quite some time, does incredible things in the industry of um, changing people's relationship with alcohol, has done incredible things. Uh, You are going to love this podcast, this is a fantastic episode that you'll want to listen to again, that you will want to share with friends. Uh, Because there's so much good stuff in here about changing your relationship with alcohol, understanding your relationship with alcohol, um, the latest research that's out there, the changes in the alcohol industry, so much. Today I am joined by Professor David Nutt. Um, He is an English neuropsychopharmacologist, specializing in the research of drugs that affect the brain in conditions such as addiction, anxiety, and sleep. He's also the chairman of Drug Science, a non-profit which he founded in 2010 to provide independent evidence-based information on drugs. Until 2009, he was a professor at the University of Bristol, heading their psychopharmacology unit. Since then, he's been the Edmund J. Safra Chair in Neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London and Director of the Neuropsychopharmacology Unit in the Division of Brain Sciences there. Uh, Dr. Nutt was a member of the Committee on Safety of Medicines and was the President of the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology. Uh, he's written books, um, work which we'll go deep into today. He's been developing alternatives to alcohol and then campaigning globally to change the world's relationship with alcohol. It's a fascinating episode. I hope you enjoy it and uh, as much as I enjoyed making it, let's hear from Professor David Nutt. Absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, Dave. I've been, been trying to get you on for a while, so um, no fault of yours. I'm sure I was sending the emails into your junk
1: mail, as many of my emails do. So thank you for joining us on the show today. How are you? Thanks for the invite. No, I, and I apologize. It's, it's been a busy couple of months, but uh, I'm glad we've managed to get together. You, you have been up to so much. Busy covered the months?
0: Years? Decades? <laughs> You've been a busy man. Yeah, but I'm getting slower. I'm getting older. Uh, well, it doesn't look like you, the 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 impact that you're having. It doesn't look like it's slowing down whatsoever. And we're going to go into that in a bit of detail. But um, yeah, so in the unlikely event that somebody is listening to this podcast and they don't know who you are, would you give us a bit of background um, in and you know how you how you got into this space of researching
1: and you know, ultimately where you are today? Yeah, so I'm a uh, I'm a doctor. I'm a psychiatrist. I mean, I went into medicine to because I wanted to be a researcher of humans and human mind and human experiences. And I re- reasoned that being a doctor would give me more competence <clears throat> to, to administer the kind of things to people that tell us or help us probe what's going on in their mind. And um, I'm what's called a psychopharmacologist, which means that I study the effects of drugs on the brain. And, and I do that because I, I'm i of the generation that... Um, became doctors when it was being discovered that the brain was a chemical machine until the 19 until the late 1960s it was thought that the brain was an electrical machine like a like a ginormous um, well in those days it was called a, a sort of you know a phone interchange now we call it a computer where everything was electronic but in the, it became clear in the late 1960s and part of one of my tutors at cambridge was one of the people that discovered this is it the real connections of the brain are made by chemicals, not by electricity. And, uh, and there are a lot of different chemicals, at least 80 different chemicals, which communicate between cells in the brain. And that gives us a lot of opportunity because drugs are chemicals too. So we can use drugs to probe the effects of brain chemicals. And we can use, um, uh, also drugs to treat disorders and, um, and between those two approaches, we can get a really interesting profile of what's going on in the brain with drugs and also how the chemicals might go wrong in disorders like addiction or depression or anxiety or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: that's I mean that that in itself is fascinating. and I think that's where um, you know you've you've had so many insights, particularly around alcohol, and we're going to talk more deeply into that, but also you know why it's so bad. And also well, why there's some far, far better substances, if we, should we say, um, for our, our brains. I thought it was neuro psychopharmacologist. Yes. Is there a difference between a psychopharmacologist and a neuropsychopharmacologist?
1: But why am I called a neuropsychopharmacologist now rather than just a psychopharmacologist? Because I actually do work in the neuro space as well as that's the neurological space, as well as the psychiatry, psychological space. And I do that for the, because it turns out that um, there's a lot of overlap so for instance if you work on the dopamine system, I'm interested in dopamine in relation to addiction but there is a whole other group of people who are interested in dopamine in relation to Parkinson's disease and it turns out we can use the same tools to explore both and sometimes occasionally we can use the same insights to help both so um, actually that goes back to my when I, my thesis, my my, um, my PhD when I was working actually I was working on epilepsy um, because in those days I wasn't sure if I was going to be a neurologist or a psychiatrist and I, I was probing the mechanisms that control brain excitability uh, particularly to the GABA system and uh, and that was where I actually my, made my first discovery about alcohol because I was looking at trying to work out how drugs which stop seizures work and uh uh, i was exploring a range of different drugs and one day i thought well you know let's see what alcohol does because funnily enough in those days you know people were still using alcohol as a medicine they were uh, certainly you, you could give people drinks at night to help them sleep and then occasionally you'd give people intravenous alcohol to, um, to dampen down things like dt so i was interested in and i like i was doing some work on uh, you know i thought well let's see what happens if. Uh, I use alcohol instead of these anticonvulsants. And lo and behold, what I discovered was that um, alcohol was an anticonvulsant, but I could reverse it with a drug that worked on the GABA system. And at that point, i that was actually a major insight for me because I suddenly thought, well, I got very—I actually I got very excited by that because I could sober up a rat. I could sober up a, a completely intoxicated rat. Rat couldn't stand up. I could sober him up uh, within seconds. And I, I remember thinking, I've solved the problem of alcohol. I have an antidote. I can, I can stop people having the problems of drink. And I remember going in to see my professor. I said, "You know, get ready for the call to, to Sweden for the <laughs> Nobel Prize. I've got an alcohol antidote." And he said, "What's the point of that?" So I reflected for a bit. I thought, well, "Hang on, yeah, good question. Well, people could remember what they did the night before. Okay, well, maybe they want to. Uh, uh, maybe I merely remember what that." And he said, "Well, anyway, whatever you could, you know, if you could reverse those effects, you won't be reversing the toxic effects. It will still be rotting their liver and their heart, and their brain. In fact, they might even drink more because they want to get drunk, so overcome the block. So that's it. No more Nobel Prize. In fact, I kind of stopped working on it for a while. But but it didn't. The the fact was, we we knew that alcohol. That was the first demonstration. I think possibly the first proper demonstration." that alcohol worked with the GABA system. And now here I am, you know, 40 years on, using, probing the GABA system to make my alternatives to alcohol. Which
0: we will will talk about, um, and I'm looking forward to discussing. But just linking back to, um, I do hope that Nobel Prize is coming. I know you're working on things which which, um, could have a very, very significant impact to society. You know, the idea of Synthetic alcohol. Uh, I, I hate to drop this in here, but I was at Number Ten Downing Street recently. Met the PM and the Chancellor, and that was my that was my my call to arms. We just need to heavily uh, incentivize R and D with the alcohol, big alcohol, into functional drinks, um, because I, you know people still want, in this crazy world, most stressful world we've ever had, right? Most um, most epidemic in mental health. People want something to take the edge off, and it just so happens as you proved that alcohol is the worst thing in the world for that um you could select a whole bunch of other things um that would help so anyway linking to that
1: yeah well rory i hope he listens i hope he listens and as we know i only need a tiny fraction of his wife's wealth and i will have solved this problem So put me in touch yeah but that's a good point like like it's
0: people like you who need that funding and um you know i'd be interested to hear about how that's going maybe we can get to that in a little second but you know about um the research that you're doing on alcohol synth and the collaboration with the alcohol industry because those guys have massive pockets right and that's the best way to steer society away from such a harmful drug but before we do that i want to talk about the discovery right of and and your big statement which was a you know, a huge shift in your life, I guess, which was this discovery or the research that you did that alcohol was one of the world's most harmful drugs. So could you tell me a bit about what was going on? How did you get into that? What happened after the after the publication?
1: Well, it goes back to the days when I was uh, seen as a bit of a rising star in uh, in government science circles, brought in to help them sort out the drug laws, to make rational decisions about drugs and drug harms. And I was so I was basically about 2000. I was appointed to chair of the scientific committee of the Home Office Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, and that's a council which essentially arbitrates on whether drugs should be legal or illegal, and if they're illegal, how they should be controlled. And and it's you know it was quite at that time you know it's quite a, a committee that did have some influence occasionally the government listened to it. But when I joined that committee, I I. I did so on the condition that we developed a proper way of assessing drug harms. Because I actually went to a hearing of the committee before I was appointed to see what it was like. And I was horrified by the fact that there wasn't a structure. They were making decisions on whether a drug should be class A, B, or C, just on opinion without any systematic assessment. So I said, okay, I'll come on. I'll chair the committee. But in return, we're going to. set up ways of assessing drugs and I'd been working on a, a a way of assessing drug harms for you know quite a few years before that and we used that system uh, and we published a paper the Lancet in um, about 2007 showing actually that there wasn't any relationship whatsoever between the harms of drugs and whether they were controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act and that, um, and that began to create a lot of tension in government and it, particularly when I started saying well guys you know Uh, alcohol is really, really very harmful when you look at it in the round in a very, you know, systematic way. Why don't we, we should have some policies (laughs) which try to reduce the harms of alcohol. And at first they said it's not a drug. And in the end, you know, we had a big falling out because I guess basically saying, look, there was you know, every year there was a new substance coming along that people were getting hysterical about, you know, there were and that there was MDMA, there was synthetic cannabinoids, and there was a lot of hysteria, and that I I began to believe that that was the hysteria which was generated partly by the media but fueled by the government, was a way of distracting them from tackling the big problems which actually are the same problems today, which are alcohol and tobacco. Alcohol being the most harmful drug overall because of the enormous impact it has on other people. It's not the most harmful drug to the user, but, but the damage that alcohol does to families and to and to others, is uh, it makes it the most harmful drug. So ignoring that is actually it's stupid because of the cost, health costs, and the social costs. And it's also dishonest locking people in prison for years for taking ambulatory, whilst encouraging the advertising of something more toxic like ethanol. Is is I just kind of you know it's difficult to reconcile that in any kind of sensible world. Uh, estimated eight billion
0: is the advertising budget for the alcohol industry this year so um yeah
1: but it doesn't affect whether you drink it choose to <laughs> drink apparently which of course is well you know that's, that's absolute
0: nonsense i mean that wonderful um piece of research around peak booze in the uk well prior to it's... pandemic showing you know almost in the direct correlation with advertising spend and um alcohol consumption
1: so um yeah but well, one of the most of things were and you may not know this but about ten years ago, I was part of a major European initiative looking at the effects of alcohol, called the amphora Project. Fantastic Project, funded by the European Commission, all, all the top European experts. And one of the things we were one of the particular work packages was asking the question, to what extent is the, in, the use of alcohol by people underage drinking? To what extent is that driven by advertising? And uh, it's clearly related. Countries which have a lot of advertising have more underage drinking, and particularly when the, the advertising is is on the fronts of people, of soccer players' t shirts. You know the old days when they could actually have. A, I mean, and and it was a very strong relationship, and it, 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 you know, and and uh, very often that was illegal even then. People, companies were just getting away with it; they were bending the rules. The hard part
0: is, um, you know, there's a big celebration for the amount of advertising going into alcohol-free. And absolutely, you know, I think alcohol-free is is wonderful. I think it allows an inclusive place for people who are choosing not to drink. I think psychologically they're incredibly beneficial for people changing their relationship with alcohol in the early days. You know, all of the routine, not of it. So we're big advocates for alcohol-free. But the cynic in me is saying, well, it's been illegal to advertise alcohol in sweden for many years due to the um, um you know the government controlled um alcohol sales there um and yet the because the alcohol companies knew that what they could do is advertise with their alcohol free version and people wouldn't differentiate between whether it was alcohol free or not alcohol free they would still just pick up the brand um, and so the skeptic in me still sees that element despite it is of course a great and solid move forward to see alcohol free advertising and the change
1: in society yeah no and and we yeah we should celebrate it because it it has begun a debate it, it has I mean I you again you won't know this but uh, uh, just after I was sacked as a government's chief drugs advisor I, I I started fighting back and I I wrote a twenty one point plan for how we could reduce the harms of alcohol in uh, in Britain and uh, and I, put, I set up you know I had my new charity drug science I put it on with the website and one of the points you know I emphasised there was. In every single venue that sells alcohol, should have been by law some alternative, non-alcoholic alternatives available, because you know you could. We've had non, you know, we've had low or no alcohol beers for well, ever since I was a student, going back into the back into the seventies. So, so, but there was never a compulsion to have, make them available, and, and and they should be made available. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's
0: some phenomenal progress in there, and you've been um, driving driving a part of that. Just before we go into that, again, going into the more specific part of alcohol, I'd love to um, hear some of your what are your actual thoughts about you know what alcohol, the truth about alcohol, what does it really do to us? What are some of the things you've discovered? Um, Yeah, both for the individual and for society, you kind of touched on that, but um, any interesting science in there for us?
1: Well, yes, I mean, well, I suppose one, perhaps the most remarkable insight we've had in the last 10 years, and this comes from uh, Latchmeyer and Jürgen Rem from Germany, they've looked at the relationship of um, of alcohol and many, many physical harms, um, and this very uh, clear relationship between alcohol and cancer, which we didn't expect, we didn't know before, and and it seems that alcohol... Does, it contributes to at least seven cancers, probably to more. I mean, for instance, it's about the only thing a woman can do to reduce the risk of her breast cancer is actually to reduce her alcohol consumption. Um, but they went further. They, they did this remarkable analysis where they said, well, suppose alcohol was discovered today, like a, suppose it was a food additive that you wanted to put into your uh, trifle at Christmas. You would put your alcohol in to make the trifle get a bit more of a flavor. How much? What would be the European limit, recommended limit for alcohol consumption in a year, and putting alcohol through the same toxicity testing as all food additives, they came to the amazing conclusion: it was a glass of wine a year, if you want to have zero risk of cancer. Now, you know that's um, that's wow, yeah, startling, isn't it? A glass of wine a year. I mean, they they've shown interestingly. I mean, that's cancer is the most um, where well, the limit is least for cancer. If you want to avoid liver cirrhosis, then it's a glass of wine a day. So there are thresholds, but but it was the cancer one that is, um, was most um, most remarkable. So, I mean, uh, but of course, you've got it in proportion. You know, there are other ways of getting cancer, and certainly smoking is a lot worse than drinking a glass of wine a day, but, or, <laughs> or more than a glass of wine a year. But, but, it, but it does hem- emphasise the fact that there are... There are health risks of alcohol, which almost always exceed any health benefits, and, and that's the other major recalibration in the last ten years. It, the idea that you know, you there was a good amount of alcohol for the cardiovascular health in middle-aged men, particularly red wine. That's kind of disappeared. Really, you know, we now know that that is mostly uh, uh, an artifact of where middle-aged men live and drink a lot of red wine, which is called Provence which has many other factors. It gives you better, like, you know, like better food and a lot of sunshine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you've written a very, very powerful book about this subject, um, uh, Drink, um, uh, uh, the New Science. Exactly. Drink question one. Drink, the Big Question. Um, yeah, so, and you've got some some very interesting, and I think um, you and I are aligned on this part, Um you know, part of what we've been doing at One Year No Beer is help people to take a break, and I think for many people they they sort of they realize um, that they were perhaps in a bit of a toxic relationship with alcohol, and they couldn't see the truth of what it is while they were in it. So a break is helpful, um, but you know most people um, they don't want to stop drinking. They, it's so prevalent in society, um, and I think we can help people a lot earlier in the game. Um, you know, I think all of our research, all of our our studies show that people are looking for control sometimes years before they get to the point where they think you know what I need to stop now um and so I think we can help people a lot earlier and I think you know your book is is very very much aligned um with that sort of messaging so tell us a bit about the book um, and um, some of the key highlights that to come out of that for you
1: well yes it so uh, it's a book that does try to tread this unusual path between either celebrating or demonizing alcohol and it is—it's—it's a—it's a—it's a based on you know my forty years working in the field treating people with alcohol problems uh, and other drug problems and and but also seeing you know the benefits of alcohol. I mean, alcohol's figured like it has in almost every person of my generation's life has significant part in, in in much of the pleasures. So what I wanted to do was try to get people to understand the pros and the cons, and uh, and then. If we can minimise the cons and maximise the pros, you know, I, life would be better, wouldn't it? I mean, it wouldn't be perfect, but it would definitely be better. And uh, I mean, the, so there are several key, key messages that are in the book. I mean, one of the things it's quite clear that most most drinkers would accept this. Most drinkers don't actually get a lot of benefit from most of what they drink. So one of the points I make is, if you look, if you reflect back over a week, all the drinks you've drunk. And count the number of ones. It actually made a difference. It's probably less than half. So immediately, if you got rid of the ones, it don't make a difference. Really, make you worse. You get hangovers. Then you can you can immediately have a, have a benefit. So knowing what you drink yeah. is really that's right. Absolutely, yeah. don't drink anything. Uh, and of course, that often comes yeah. when you're drunk. When you then <laughs> you don't even realize that you, you you might have set out with the intention of not drinking more than a, a couple of drinks, and then you lose control. So one of the um, messages in my book is is that your alcohol consumption should be, should be something you you know about in so, so most I mean it's good practice, let's put it this way for most people to know their weight and their waist circumference and their blood pressure and when you get over 40, your cholesterol. those are sort of key features that most people should know about and do know about. It'll, and with all that, and so alcohol consumption should go alongside those. And what you should always be doing is trying to reduce those, rather than expand.
0: <laughs> I like that. That's a good little tick box. These are the key things to reduce. Now you've turned forty.
1: So, but I've also, I also when I was writing the book, I there's lots in the book about the science, but, but again, it's the practical issues. I mean, like, I was thinking, what what sensible things could people do? I mean, okay, you want to reduce your drinking. How do you reduce your drinking? Well, one of my favorite inventions of the book was the, uh, the uh, recommendation to couples. If you're having a glass, uh, if you're having wine with a meal, never open the second bottle. Because the temptation then is to wander off into the lounge and finish the second bottle at the TV. It's very hard to res- once you've had a half a bottle, so assuming you're sharing it with someone else, very hard to resist once you've opened the next set. So never open a second bottle over a meal. That's, that's another sort of simple pointer. I mean, if you if you did that, there'd be a lot yeah, less anxiety absolutely.
0: Um, and, uh, and I love that. You know, um, we have a, um, a high-level program for business owners, execs, um, really to uncover the root causes, so some key elements that drive compulsive behavior. And, you know, ultimately, the, yes. uh, you look at something, so we use a device to remotely monitor people's central nervous system to show how stressed they are. If you're not doing something to mitigate your stress you're going to want to numb out at the end of the day Um, and so there's lots of little things we take people like that through but i would be really interested to hear specifically from your words Mm -hmm. have you witnessed people who have had um, significant relationships with alcohol so let's define that right let's call that regularly consuming more than double the amount right which is not even that much i mean i used to work with guys who'd smash past the 100 Mm -hmm. units a week right and they were fully functional high performing Mm -hmm. achievers um, so, you know, let's say 30 units a week, have you, have you seen people being <laughs> able to control their drinking long-term and is there good studies? And I know I'm asking a rhetorical question cause I do know the answer, but, but I want to hear it from your voice that people are able to comfortably reduce their consumption.
1: So, yeah, well, hang on. So that's quite a complex set of questions. Um, well, one of the paradoxes with alcohol is that we, yeah, there are, there will always be people. Who say that they have drunk well more than the recommended limits and come to no harm? And of course, my response to them is, "Well, you don't yet know, because yeah. most of us haven't a clue whether whether it is pickling our liver, or our brain, or power of the uh, liver, right? It's, so uh, pretty, yeah. In population, yeah. but there are, yeah. I mean, uh, but, uh, you know, there are individuals who manage to live a long life having consumed a lot, in the same way as there are people who have smoked for fifty years and have never got lung cancer or got emphysema or bronchonic The likelihood is there's some genetic variation that makes them more uh, resistant. We don't know what that is, so we can't even predict who they are. And we certainly can't give them things that would mimic whatever the gene's doing. But for the vast majority of people, there is a significant detriment to drinking over the uh, recommended limit. But the really important message, and this is something, again, to emphasise, the relationship between alcohol and harm is not linear. Doubling your consumption normally leads to more than a doubling of your harm. In fact, at high levels, it can lead to a tripling or quadrupling of your harm. And that's why any reduction from a high level, i.e. glass, a bottle of wine a day or beyond, any reduction will have mega good health benefits. Because you you know you're putting yourself at such a levels. Mm. Yes, yeah, so it's an exponential chart. I mean, I've got that as a great visual now. I'll share with
0: you once the the graphic designers pull it up. But but you know the exponential risk impact and then how quickly that is reduced. Yep. Um, okay, great. So that's part answer. But so, um, any amount of reduction is 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 good. Um, yeah. Do you believe that people can go from drinking heavy amounts and get into a controlled, um, drinking? Because I think. There's, there's a lot of past um, programs, that, you know, with the greatest respect to the, the, the ones that have been out there for a long time, that would say that's impossible, or that you can't, or that you're always going to be this or that. Um, so yeah, can people successfully reduce?
1: Yes. So there are two sides to this. answer. the first is, if you give people really good, clear guidelines on the harms that alcohol is doing, and... and Give them some recommendations and tips as to how they can reduce their consumption. Some of them can, and and, and he's, you know it's gained you know you get them to read my book. There are there are plenty of ways you can begin to eat away at the the, 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 the more dangerous, the more negative aspects of of drinking. And a second point, a really important point, which I, you're alluding to, I think, is that I always say never drink alone if you drink, I mean, the point about, if there's a point to alcohol, it's a social point. Alcohol is the ultimate social drug. It makes you get on better with other people. We believe now from evidence going back 20, 30,000 years, that's why alcohol has been celebrated and cherished by human society. It brings people together. Drinking alone defeats the purpose or the benefit of alcohol, but more worse than that, a lot of people drinking alone well, because they're trying to deaden pain, deaden stress. So self-medication with alcohol is a really dangerous route to go. And, and you know, if you, if you work out that's what you're doing, then really you should stop. But then we come to the other side. So there are people who cannot cut down. And in which case, if you tried a few times and you can't cut down, then the next sensible approach is abstinence. And, of course, that's something which is challenging, difficult. But there are strategies you can use to help explain why you're abstinent. I mean, 10 years, 15 years ago, actually, saying you were an abstinent, well, you know, people would look at you as if you were a bit weird. But now I think, you know, people are more un- understanding cool. of the health harms of alcohol. They're, they're more understanding of, of people. Well, in some in some groups it is. Yes. It can, I mean, it, it can it be is cool. with It with is with the cool kids. It is. I agree. Yep. And so you know you've got ways of you know of staying you know basically staying sober drink but still being part of the social group if you, you can by using low alcohol drinks etc. And, and but then there are some people interestingly and I've you know I've seen this obviously in patients of mine over the years you, they're abstinent for a while and, and you're terrified they relapse if they start drinking again but maybe after ten or fifteen years they get more mature their drives get less their urgencies get less they can sometimes come back to to, to um normal normal drinking and you know you're always a bit on tenterhooks and i'm always saying to them well monitor 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 but but sometimes that seems to happen so you know clearly alcohol has different effects at different stages in life and i mean it's it's particularly uh, enjoyable when you know you're young and active and socializing and trying to meet members of the opposite sex or whatever once you get kids actually if you you know if you can't cut down your drinking when you've got children then you're in real stuck because yeah because they don't, don't give up hangovers
0: uh, and kids do not
1: mix where well, indeed they don't enough or something and, yeah, yeah and there are those sad you know there's also the problem you know drunk drunkenness and kids is very disturbing and you know the moral imperative not to be drunk in front of your children is something we should be really impressing <laughs> on people is terrifying to children to see their parents yeah under control. that's well said about four years ago i did a, a phone-in for you and yours the bbc for, a, show you, uh, you know radio Four program and it was a it was a phone-in on great yeah Great show! It was a phone-in on for children of alcoholics, and I think it was the most phoned-in program they've ever had. And what staggered me was, you know, it's a forty, forty-five, fifty-minute phone-in. Almost all of the people ringing in were women, women in their fifties to eighties, who still suffered the scars of having drunk mothers. Yeah. And that's something, to my mind, I was absolutely staggered by that. That is true. That's an area of life which has almost been completely sealed off. You know, one didn't talk about it because what context would you talk about it? Freeing up people to explain how it it damaged them. But the fact is that that damage was still there 30, 40, 50, 60 years after they were children. I, I found that really chilling. And that's why I made that comment earlier on to you. Yeah.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And that's, I think that's incredibly powerful. So great message to, to, to send around. So, um, thank you. An amazing book and we will promote that heavily because it is super aligned with what we're doing. And so, it, you know, it's a, it's a great book and resource for people to read, um, a very balanced conversation, which is what your intention was with the book. And I think that's important. I think that reaches a much, much wider audience. Um, and, uh, you know, will help people much earlier. So thank you for the book. Let's pause just for a brief moment. I just want to share with you some of the heartfelt feedback from our incredible Complete Control community members. Listen to this.
2: I I don't know how I signed up. I think I just got an ad on in Instagram and just got a whim, just hit the button and did a call and then signed up and didn't really consciously think much about it. And then after that, I was like, what did I just sign up for? Wait a second here. Like, far exceeded my expectations. I'm usually extremely skeptical. So I don't know how I even signed up in the first place, but whatever it was. Um, so it's just amazing how like the transformation that I've seen, and even the drinking part is just kind of the super, it's, it was the Achilles heel, but it's kind of just the superficial problem. And it's like, once I kind of clear that up, there's so much more possibility. And, and you know, the exploration discussions with Gary, with Candace have just been so powerful and kind of they both kind of focus on a different area and then with glenn kind of looking at my data and with my co- cohorts or classmates or you know it's just been just everything has just been so powerful and kind of supportive of you know completing the whole picture of how i do this um so just really grateful and and uh yeah and 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 also just feel more grateful and not only just for all of you but just just in life in general it's just a little bit more clarity and peace and calm and 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 so forth so
3: i am incredibly grateful for this entire program everybody on this call and everything that we were able to experience um i think that it delivered more than i expected honestly i i like I've said before, I've done a couple like challenges and different things. And I think that this, beyond um examining my relationship with alcohol and making, I think, pretty good strides in in um staying alcohol free, um, I think it taught me a ton about myself and how to like examine my habits and my thoughts and those kind of um, patterns and ways to ways to approach the things that worried me the most in this, in this experience um, have just been invaluable. I think I'm leaving feeling um, in stronger in general, more self-aware in general, and um, just really more anchored in who I want to be and what my values are and how I can, you know, take better steps to achieve those. So it's been fantastic for me. And again, the our team, I, I really um, appreciate all the feedback and support from every single person on this call, but my cohort as well. It's been great. So I love everybody that I've met here. I have loved the program. I am not uh, an emotional person like this, but this has changed my life. It, it, it has given me a life. Um, and there's other things I need to do too, um, but I don't have to do them alcohol anymore, so Thank you. It's been an amazing journey, and a very—I appreciate the professionalism. Whenever I feel the stress, I, there's there's something that I can go back to to everybody, and the sharing from everybody, and the professionalism of the program. So I loved it, and I've grown a lot. So, love And kisses. One word is transformational. That's a word that's been bandied about for decades, but. In this, it is absolutely accurate. If I was to use one word, this was a great investment. It's not, it's not self-help. It's self-realization. It's um, super powerful. But it, it exceeded my expectations. Or maybe it was Sharon who said that. Um, Uh, Or maybe I'm exceeding my expectations, and I like that. I mean, the program has been hugely.
1: I'm hugely grateful for the program. I think the journey of for myself has been amazing. I mean, I remember telling I don't know if it's Candice or Gary, the first three or four weeks of the program, I was like, I can't stop thinking about not drinking. It's just it's in my head. Every day I'm thinking about not drinking, and it's it's like now I'm not even thinking about it. You know, it's just like my life has sort of stepped on. I'm excited about the future. Um, Things are looking good. Things
3: are looking good.
0: I just love sharing the things people are saying about our Complete Control program. Okay, let's get back into the episode. Now, I want to talk about what you've been pioneering for a long time, which is Really, you came out with this this um, agenda, not agenda, but this mission to create some kind of synthetic alcohol, which would give people the feeling, right? As in, there is still demand, and we can't ignore the demand. People do want to have something, and um, so let's make it better, right, than what the rubbish that we're using at the moment. Um, better for health, lower impact on hangover, and things like that. Now, you started working on that, um, and you've 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 mm-hmm. built something. So, yeah, give me some insights into. The sort of mission of creating Alcosynth and where you've got to.
1: Well, it really—it so started in about 2004, because in those days, before my sacking, as I said, I was—you know—I was seen as quite a useful person to the government, and I—I I was not just advising them on drugs. I was also advising them on on sort of policy and 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 research. And there was a, a every year there used to be a foresight program which looked give a 25 year view of what how science is going to change in 25 years and how how should the british economy be ready for that and uh, and they decided they asked me to chair the group that's looking at drugs brain science and drugs and uh, and during that year it was like you know a very intense but a very interesting year of, of exploring the future i began we began to talk about all drugs obviously alcohol being a drug and uh, and up to that point you know i'd spent the last 25 years working on treatments for alcohol, I've new ways of helping alcohol withdraw. I've been working on craving drugs. Uh, yeah, I've been working on ways to help the brain regrow. All my life was about trying to reduce the harms of alcohol. And during this brainstorming year, I, I began to realize that actually, because alcohol is such a complicated and promiscuous drug, we couldn't get a, a proper antidote for the reasons I've described earlier on. It wouldn't necessarily work. And, and finding treatments for all the problems of alcohol just was going to be such an enormous task. It, we would, I couldn't, couldn't see how we could do it. And then it kind of came to me, in a, you know, in a, in a brainstorm. Well, maybe why don't we just replace alcohol? And the rest of the group thought that was quite a good idea. So we put it in the government report. We could do this. Uh, and then I wrote about it afterwards. You know, and people said, "Oh, I suppose you could do it," but most people said, "No, you couldn't do it." You know, why not? Because it's never been done before. Oh well, okay, but so I started working on it, but it um, it took it's always, it's been I've been working on it now for pushing push twenty years. And the challenge actually is not the intellectual. I mean, it's an intellectual challenge, yeah. It's quite challenging to to make molecules which mimic the effects of alcohol but don't have the other effects of alcohol, but also have the time course and don't have uh, big problems if you drink a lot of them. But we've, we've achieved that. But the, the biggest challenge actually is getting people to believe in the concept. Because uh, that's why it's taken a long time, you know. If uh, if I was going to cure, find a vaccine to cure COVID, that, you know, I'd have done it. You know, you'd do that in a year if you put enough resources in. But you know, we haven't had enough resources at present. But but we got there, and now we've got molecules which are ready to go into testing. And uh, if they succeed in the testing, then we will have an ingredient which we're calling Archarell, which companies any any drinks company in the world could put into any drink they want to make instead of alcohol. So we could have a whole range of alcohol free Dave, drinks. if you make that work you're going to
0: be a very 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 wealthy man <laughs> that you've basically got the license um and the and the rights on on every bottle being sold by all brands across the world yeah that's cool
1: will you remember me when you're on your mega got well I think my children were probably yes well you can invest now it's a fantastic fantastic investment opportunity are you are you uh, actually raising for our yes they are yeah no well we, yeah we are in the current stage we are raising money for our, absolutely this is a critical phase we've got a, we've um we've identified three chemical series we're in literally today i just signed the um the order for the final set of testing on the final 12 compounds in the next in a couple of months time i know exactly the molecule i want to take forward and then that's when the real crunch comes because it i mean it will cost a million pounds to make enough of it to test it and it will cost at least 2 million pounds to test it over 2 years through all the safety tests so so that's when the big the big raise is coming later this year to get us to into that uh, to that set of um of testing and when it goes through that testing which by the way we're doing in america because they do at least have um they do actually tell you what to do over there. In Britain, they don't tell you. They say, you can try this, but we won't tell you if we'll approve it if it works. But in the States, they have a they have a template. Do this. If it works, it's a food. You can yeah. sell it. I mean, so if you... Well, 1 million and 2 million,
0: 3 million, that is chump change for an industry that is a trillion dollars a year or whatever it is for, for alcohol if you, if you um, solve this part.
1: So if you... Yes, if you, yeah, it is, but we... We have refused to go in partnership with a single company. A a number of them have come along and said, We'll buy you. And we think, Hang on, does that mean we'll close you? Uh huh. They won't. So, we and what we want is that the whole industry will have access to this so that every company can then develop its own alternatives we don't want to be either contained within a one company or worse be bought and then yeah. you know shut down um,
0: super exciting are you crowdfunding or are you doing it too privately or
1: how are you raising and a bit of both a bit of both yes um we've got a there's a call out through tribe first you can you can uh, buy shares through tribe first we've also got some some you know private investors coming in um but you know we're yeah we're very happy um Anyone's interested, you can go on the. It's, it's called the GABA Labs. We set up a company called GABA Labs because GABA is the the, the uh, molecule that receptor in the brain we're targeting. And yeah, go onto the website. You can easily get the IM. And yeah, we'd be delighted to have. Um, uh, well, we need more investment because one of thing's for sure. Without it, I don't think the government, unless Rory, unless you can really pour some strings for me. I mean, the government should be funding it. This could revolutionise not only not only health but also wealth. But it's very, very – we did put an application into a government innovation fund about four years ago. I just you – know, they just got bounced without any comments. I think people still think it's just too crazy. But but it isn't because it's not – you know, the science is difficult, but it's not impossible. And we've achieved – I think we've got where we want to be in terms of the monkey.
0: So but you do have an amazing product, which was sort of like first step, first thing now. Uh, I just want to touch onto the bit, so um, I'm probably going to ruin this, but GABA is a neuroreceptor inside the brain. You identified early on that alcohol um, um, releases or or agitates GABA. So if you could just explain a little bit there about why you then went deeper to GABA, and then we'll
1: talk about sentia. In order to replace alcohol, or to find an alternative, you have to know what alcohol is doing in the brain. Now, alcohol does a lot of things in the brain. There are 80 different chemicals in the brain. It's quite likely that alcohol work, it affects all of them at some dose. But over the years, me and many, many other groups have worked on the chemistry of alcohol in it, and it turns out that the prior, the first effect, the effect of a glass of wine, a pint of beer, is on the GABA system. Now the GABA, GABA is the main calming transmitter in your brain. It's the anti-stress transmitter. It's the sociability transmitter. Because one of the problems... As you know, why do why do people drink? The first thing you do when you go to a party is you have a glass of alcohol. Why? Because a party is a social situation where you meet people you don't know and humans are, most humans are engineered to be slightly anxious and cautious about people they don't know. Um, and uh, that makes parties pretty boring if you won't talk to someone else because you're not sure. But alcohol relaxes that and that's why it's such a great social drug. So we said Let's just target the GABA system. Now that has huge advantages, because if you don't tar- target any of the other systems, you know you can r- get rid of all the problems like addiction, dependence, hangover, toxicity in the liver, et etc. The other interesting thing about the GABA system is it's really complicated, And I think a lot of people say oh, it's too complicated. There's fifteen different kinds of GABA receptors. But it turns out that complexity is an advantage because there are different receptors in different parts of the brain. So if you know which receptors in the bit of the brain that you want to target, which is the frontal parts of the brain where you do your anxiety, your worry, your social interactions, if you just target those those receptors, it might be challenging to do it, but you can do it. Uh, and then you've actually got this amazing specificity as well. So, uh, so that's what we've achieved. And uh, we've now got these small molecules which turn on GABA in the same way as alcohol, but don't turn on all the other things that alcohol turns on. And we can be even cleverer we can get them to have a ceiling effect, so that uh, even if you took masses of it, you wouldn't um, get intoxicated, or you wouldn't get anaesthetised. And we can also tweak the molecule, and that's the that's actually turned out to be the most challenging one of all, is to tweak the molecule so it gets out fast. So because you, you know you want it to get in quickly, like alcohol, get out as quick as I alcohol, can. I can get out faster than alcohol. In fact, it gets out faster, so so you get less in the way of um, carry over and hangover. super cool it's called sentia there's two one
0: is um the dark i've tried them both now just to let you know that shipping to spain was more expensive than two bottles so as soon as you get your european distribution sorted out let me know (laughs) um
1: well we're thinking seriously i mean it's it's been a huge challenge yeah we're thinking of perhaps going to, to Ireland and, and manufacturing there because, you know, I, the, the whole customs business across Brexit has been such a nightmare.
0: Um, so, uh, yeah, an, an amazing product. I've tried it. Um, I took it to a party just recently and and let everyone taste it. Um, There was a bunch of people there that when they arrived were like, uh, uh. I, I don't I'm not sure if I'm going to have a drink and I was like oh would you like to try this and they were like wow so it's not alcohol there was lots of wonderful conversation about it, um about um you know the the the, the just you know what this is doing and everybody loved it everybody loved the concept of it had that nice feeling it's it's a di- definitely a different feeling to alcohol but there is absolutely a feeling there now I've tried a number of these functional drinks before um the botanical ones. And I didn't really feel anything. I was like, you know, I don't really get it. But there's undoubtedly um, a, a feeling that you get from from going into here. It's just more of a calmness, more chat, chatty, more sociable, um, and um, you know, so I'm, it's it's great stuff. Well, I'm impressed that so that this was in Spain, was it? And so I was doing a little tasting with your sentia in,
1: yeah. a, in, a, in a party in Majorca. That's fantastic. Well, that's well, that's reassuring that you. Know, you're, you're talking to people who've got, you know, probably quite got an interesting experience of a rise of range of animals, yeah.
0: It? So uh, what I want to talk about now, because we, we've, we've covered a lot of topics, but I actually regularly dip into your podcast. So you've got a great podcast, um, Drug Science Review. I can't remember the exact name, but it's Drug Science by Professor David Nutt. Um, and um, it is it is really fascinating because what you're really talking about in there is, hey, we need to have a new conversation about drugs. Um, What drugs are good for you and what drugs are really bad for you? Um, And this leads me on to psychedelics, which is um, a passion topic of mine. Um, I'm incredibly excited about the work and the developments and the science going into psychedelics, the potential for them with trauma, past traumas, healing and addiction, uh, mental health disorders. I'm so excited about that. Your podcast is one of the best resources um, for, for anyone who has got any interest into that. Um yeah, would you like to share with us a bit of insight of what you've you know discovered recently about psychedelics? you know certainly around addiction. Yeah, your thoughts on that?
1: Well, as I said at the beginning, I'm a psychopharmacologist, and what we do is we explore the effects of drugs on the brain. and one of my claims to fame, which is yet to be proved wrong, is that I've probably given more different kinds of drugs to human beings the, than anyone alive. The biggest
0: drug dealer on uh,
1: the planet. <laughs> or
0: the most diverse
1: but there was one class of drug which we'd never studied because of the, it's illegal and about 15 years ago as I'm getting older I thought well there comes a point when someone's got to do it and I was you know I was very experienced and very senior at that time you know not much to lose so I worked with um, some colleagues in the Beckley Foundation to say could we do the first study of what's going on in the brain with a psychedelic and uh, and that proved challenging uh, but it proved remarkable because we proved that Timothy Leary was wrong. He said, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out. In fact, we showed using you know, brain imaging that actually you don't turn on the brain. The psychedelics turn off parts of the brain. Uh, but, it's, but they turn off the parts of the brain which actually uh, can be problematic for people. So I didn't start out thinking I was psychedelics going to have any use in different branches of medicine that you've already mentioned. I just thought, I want to know what that psychedelic state is. Turned out it is a state of very strange activity, but driven by the ability to turn off circuits, which people get locked into thinking, thought loops, which are negative, thought loops about drugs, craving, thought loops about worthlessness, depression. And it's because we could see those thought loops being um, disrupted. We thought, well, maybe... Maybe that we could maybe these could be a therapy, uh, and in fact, then we read the literature going back in the fifties and sixties, where we realized they were therapies. In fact, they they were banned not because they weren't therapies; they were banned because people were use, anti-Vietnam War protesters were using using psychedelics. So we thought, well, let's see if we can do some studies. And we and a couple of groups in the state started doing some small pioneering studies in in people with various disorders, depression, addiction, end of life anxiety and distress. And we found psychedelics, a single or one or two psychedelic trips had a huge impact. It changed people's lives. Uh, It it lifted depression for people who'd been depressed for years. In that first depression study we did 10 years ago, there are people still well now, 10 years on. The majority of the depression crept back, but it turned out a single magic mushroom trip produced the most powerful impact on the depression of any single treatment ever in the history of, of medicine. So, you know, these are hugely powerful and exciting findings and you know glad to be part of it Uh, the big problem now is that we know we can affect those changes but we very few patients can access them because we can only use these drugs in research trials because they're illegal that is what you are working hard to campaign so I can see
0: we're already having shifts right Um, you can do ketamine therapy now in the UK Um, MDMA has just recently been um, licensed for clinical studies in the UK Uh, US I think and many states are further ahead there are places in the world where some of these things substances are legal and you can go Netherlands um, being early Costa Rica uh, Mexico Um, you can do different and then you can do unofficial things but um, from what I've seen it's really important setting professionalism and certainly what I've discovered you know that is a very very key part of it is making sure that you have um, the right facilitator, the right room, the right pe- experienced people in the room to to facilitate it. But um, what do you what do you think is the most promising from from what you're you're seeing in this area? Um, what does the future look like in your mind? And what do you think is the most
1: promising? Well, we've done most of our work on satosybin because I thought from the beginning that it was the most promising uh, for several reasons. The first is the trip is four to five hours so it's quite a long trip but it gives people time to to really work into their past and and make sense of things it's also very very safe you know we i don't know there were, if but when you were young a lot of young people were going up to the hills of the brecons and Dartmoor and using mushrooms and we estimated about a million young people a year in britain were using mushrooms and there were you know there were no very very few harms were coming so so we had a lot of safety data um and um and it is, and any single trip produces powerful outcomes. So, so we're, you know, we're some um, vested in, in in working with psilocybin because of those um, those for those reasons. But MDMA is ahead of the, ahead in the states because in America the um, organization called MAPS has been developing MDMA for PTSD for the last thirty years. So, uh, arguing it should never have been banned in the first place. Of course, it shouldn't. Um, and getting really powerful effects um, using MDMA psychotherapy with with people who've been traumatized, and it is very likely that that will be a medicine next year. And then I hope, I hope Britain, you know, I hope we will not set our own. St- and I think hope we'll accept that the, if it's good enough for America, it's good enough for here. We won't expect the companies to do other studies in Britain, which they probably wouldn't do. So, so I'm hopeful that British patients might get access to it, maybe 25. And then with psilocybin, hopefully, in twenty six or twenty seven. But but I just point out Australia, yeah, has just jumped the gun as the end of um end of June they, they've made psilocybin a, a licensed treatment for treatment resistant depression and MDMA for treatment resistant PTSD based on the fact that there's enough evidence now to warrant it and because a charity has agreed to provide it and. and I think that's brilliant. I mean, it would be so nice if, if if British charities could say, "Well, let's do the same. Let's let's make available MDMA for our veterans from the Afghan and Iraq wars who are still drinking themselves to death because they haven't got trauma treatment. Let's let's get that into 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 the the health system quicker because you, we don't know we we don't actually know whether a company will ever bring it forward. You know, we hope they will, but but even so, it might not. And even why wait all those years while a company brings it forward? Why not just accept the fact there's so much evidence it is a medicine? Exactly, for they God medicine. sake,
0: it's written on the bloody wall. Just listen. So do you think, are we having sensible conversations? Do you think we're going to follow everyone else sleepily? Or do you think, you know, you're you're there with the guys, I'm sure, when you're not in there anymore, but you're you're connected to the people who are. Are, are we going to
1: make a change here? Eight years ago, we published the first study showing psilocybin, single dose, radically good outcomes in treatment-resistant depression. That was funded by the Medical Research Council. They've turned down my last five grants. We were leading the world. Actually, there was a guy called Dominic Cummings who was in Number Ten back then. After a bit after that, he was really keen. There was quite a scientific bent in the early uh, period of the Johnson administration. That's all for about. I find it really frustrating that having led the world, we're now you know behind the world. But I was comforted last just two nights ago. The um, previous um, chief scientist Patrick Vallance and the head of the um, the vaccine task force Kate Bingham were both saying publicly that it's time to revisit the use of these drugs because of the mental health problem. So the fact that you've got very senior people who come from a different field. You know, vaccinology is not the same as psychedelics. So, they, no one's going to say these are aged hippies. They're going to say these are hard nosed scientists. So the fact they're saying it, to my mind, that's very comforting. I mean, I think maybe it's time to change. Yeah, maybe we will get a, a, a shift, and and maybe um, this current government, you know, might be a bit more sympathetic than the Johnson yeah, one. Well,
0: you know, you 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 are there, right? You've 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 pioneered much of this stuff you've innovated this stuff you've driven powerful agendas that have already impacted so many people dave and you know this the the work that you're doing it it does you do deserve um and i hope that you do achieve it because the the work that you're doing could impact billions of lives um and um you know so i just want to thank you for what you do i'm really really so glad you've come on the podcast um to share the story we're obviously going to have more of a conversation ongoing. I really want to support what you're doing um, and um, and help get behind. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show today, sharing your story. Just to mention a couple of things to make sure everyone is fully aware, get the book, uh, Drink the New Science of Alcohol and Health by David Nutt, and the listen to the podcast if you want to hear about um, the latest in drug science, and that's the Drug Science Podcast, which is on Apple and Spotify and all those
1: good things. Um, and anywhere else they find you, Dave. And yeah, all well, the charity and on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, please. I only t- I only tweet things that you need to know. And guess I've sent it, yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dave. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Rory.